For several months toward the end of 1966, the eyes of the world were focused on West Virginia, specifically on Point Pleasant. Scores of people all reported seeing something similar. This creature became known as the Mothman. All of this seemed to lead to a terrible disaster when the Silver Bridge collapsed. All of this dominated headlines and newspapers. However, buried deep inside the pages of the press were claims of another bizarre sighting that was overshadowed by both Mothman and the Silver Bridge. His name was Indrid Cold, also known as the Grinning Man, and this figure has earned a reputation in American folklore that persists to this day. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, I'm constantly posting content exclusively for patrons. Archive episodes of Weird Darkness, personal videos, full chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating, and more. You can learn more and become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. And a huge welcome to my newest patrons, Brian Glover, Bailey Casales, Brandy Frank, and Gary Martinez. Welcome to the Weirdo family, guys. I really appreciate your support and also the encouragement you're giving me to continue making these podcasts. Thanks for supporting what I do. By the way, some big opportunities are coming to Weird Darkness soon that you will hopefully hear about in the weeks and months to come. For them to be the most effective, though, I could really use your help. If you are a fan of the show, would you please do me the honor of posting a link to this episode on all of your social media and also suggest that your friends give it a listen and subscribe for themselves? I know that sounds like a little thing, but if all the weirdos do it, it could launch the show to the next level a lot more quickly, at which point I'm sure you'll love what you hear. So please, share the link to the show on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, send an email to all of your contacts and ask them to give it a listen. Maybe copy the link to this episode and text it to everybody in your phone's contact list. I could really use the help, and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it if you did so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… In commemoration of St. Patrick's Day, we have a story of soldiers and spirits that dates back to the Battle of Antietam Creek, the bloodiest single day of the Civil War, the story of the Irish Brigade and the ghosts it left behind. The fear of being buried alive has been a constant companion of mankind for as long as anyone can remember. It's due to this fear that we have safety coffins that are still in use today more than 200 years after their invention. In one particular hospital, 
the staff avoid booking people in room 228, and for good reason. A sewing machine salesman sees a car speeding towards him, a car like none he had ever seen. When the passenger gets out, he has a terrifyingly large grin and spoke to him, but without using any words. Cloven footprints are found in new fallen snow. That in itself would not be strange, except that the creature that left the prints was only walking on two legs. What is the earliest memory you have of your childhood? One girl has a memory of floating over her own body when she was only three years old. But that was only the beginning. John List planned the murders so carefully he almost got away with it. In fact, it took 18 years to catch him. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Woodrow Derenberger made his living by selling sewing machines. November 2, 1966 was a long day for him. By 7 p.m. he was driving along a hill just outside Parkersburg on Interstate 77 and was looking forward to arriving at home. On this cold and wet evening, the last thing he wanted was to have to stop on the side of the road to replace a sewing machine that had become dislodged in the back of his vehicle. The sewing machine was undamaged and he quickly resituated it. Derenberger might have parked a little bit better, but he left enough room for other commuters to pass by his stationary vehicle while he tended to his business. None of these drivers came forward to confirm Derenberger's account of what followed. Having returned to the driver's seat of his van and continuing on his way, a set of headlights passed him and began to slow down in front of him. For the second time, Derenberger had to stop. This time, he had to do so in the middle of the road. Careful not to dislodge any other appliances in his van, Woodrow was driving conservatively and likely not driving anywhere near the speed limit. Despite this, his first thought centered on a patrol car and a possible sobriety test. He quickly dismissed this conclusion, though, when he realized that he was not looking at a car at all. Whatever this was, it was shaped much like an old-fashioned kerosene lamp with a central bulge and flared edges. A door slid open and a man exited. According to Derenberger, this man was average in many ways. He had a deep tan and hair that was dark and swept back. A deep tan was unusual for the time of year, but the extraordinarily broad grin that this man wore was easily the most striking thing about his appearance. As soon as the man exited, he began to head in Derenberger's way. As the distance shortened, Derenberger noted that this man had a dark overcoat on, and beneath that he wore a metallic-looking uniform that was green and glistened in a limited light. This man's arms were folded, and both sets of knuckles seemed to nestle within his own armpits. The man spoke. He identified himself as Indrid Cold and said that he came from a place less powerful than the United States. 
he was very reassuring and admitted that he was flesh and blood, just like Woodrow, and in no way special or spectacular. Indret also openly encouraged Woodrow to report the encounter to the authorities, and confirmation would follow. Before he returned to his vehicle, Indret revealed that this would be just the first of several such meetings the pair would have. The whole message was delivered by something similar to telepathy, and not a single word was spoken verbally. Both Indrid Cold and the vehicle departed the scene. Indrid Cold did keep his word. Woodrow received several additional visits from the same man. On some of these subsequent visits, Indrid was not alone. Derenberger revealed that his new friends came from a planet called Lanulos and that during one visit he was allowed to take a trip there. After the last of these meetings, Woodrow sought out renowned UFO investigator John Keel, who happened to also write a book about Mothman, and reported events in great detail. Purportedly, during Keel's investigations, he often received mysterious phone calls from someone calling himself Indrid Cold. This was nothing new for him, of course, but he did mention persons and not person. Keel believed that whoever phoned him was an informed third party. Despite this, Keel wrote a foreword in Derenberger's book, Visitors from Lanulos. Woodrow Derenberger was not the only person to report an appearance from a sinister-looking grinning man, either. On the very same night, on the very same road, two other men saw an elongated object land in front of their vehicle. They were also forced to stop, and they watched as a man disembarked and headed their way. He wore a dark coat and folded both arms in such a way that could be considered uncomfortable. He asked both men questions that seemed pointless to them before the man returned to the craft that subsequently took off. Several weeks before Derenberger had his encounter, a pair of boys met a man that scared both of them. The boys, James Yanchitis and Martin Mouse Munov, were walking home along 4th Street in Elizabeth, New Jersey. They reached a corner opposite a local landmark called the Turnpike. This was an elevated area with a high-wire fence and a steep incline. They reported that behind the fence stood the strangest man they ever saw. Neither had any idea how the man got there or where he came from. The man just stood there and grinned a big old grin. There are other versions of the legend involving other sightings, However, not much else has been heard of from the grinning man since the 1960s. Who he was is unknown, but many consider the encounters to have been a contrived hoax. Nonetheless, he has earned a legendary reputation that persists to this day among the men in black and the black-eyed kids. Interestingly, a recent admission by a man on Reddit claims that he was Indrid Colt. The Battle of Antietam Creek, the bloodiest single day of the Civil War. The battle was fought on September 17, 1862, during some of the most brutal days of the war for the Union Army. They had been badly beaten at Manassas, 
and were in the midst of turmoil as President Lincoln fired ineffectual general after general. At this point, it still looked as though the Confederacy might actually win the war. The battle was fought on September 17th and marked the first of two attempts by Robert E. Lee to take the war onto northern soil. The day ended with combined casualties of more than 23,000 wounded, missing, and dead. The battle itself was considered a draw, but the effects on both sides were staggering. Federal forces threw themselves at the Confederate line, hoping to break it. Leading the fourth attack of the day was the 69th New York, the Irish Brigade, a Brigadier General Thomas F. Meagher, an Irish immigrant and a campaigner for Irish freedom. The brigade was among the most colorful of the Union troops, and brawling was common, as was heavy drinking. They brought along their own priests, and he conducted mass for them on the Sabbath and on the eve of battles. In 1862, the 69th came to Virginia and were designated the 2nd Brigade of Israel B. Richardson's 1st Division, Edwin V. Sumner's 2nd Corps. They saw action at Fair Oaks, Gaines Mill, Salvage Station, and a number of other places before meeting their destiny at Antietam. As they advanced, their emerald banner snapped in the wind. The Irish Brigade announced their arrival with the sounds of drums and volleys of fire as they attacked the Confederate position. They launched their assault, cheering loudly while their priest, Father William Corby, rode among the men offering prayers and absolution. As they charged, the brigade screamed loudly and shouted a battle cry that sounded like Fa-a-ba-la, which is Gaelic for clear the way. The thunderous sound of weaponry filled the air and men fell on both sides. Father Corby, who seemed to be oblivious to the gunfire, dodged across the field, administering last rites to fallen Irishmen. Colonel Meager fought alongside his men and when he saw the Emerald Banner fall, he ordered it to be raised again. The 69th lost eight color-bearers at Antietam, and once the firing was so intense that the flagstaff was shattered in a man's hands. Meeker's horse was shot out from under him as the fighting intensified. The brigade fought fiercely and fell in huge numbers. They fired all the ammunition they had and then collected what they could from the dead and wounded and fired that too. Eventually, their cries of Fa-Bala became fainter, and the Irish Brigade lost more than 60% of its men that day, and wrote its name in the bloody pages of American history. As the fierce fighting continued, General Richardson personally dispatched to the Brigade of Brigadier General John C. Caldwell, after being told that Caldwell was in rear, hiding behind a haystack, and finally the tide turned. A number of key Confederate leaders were lost in the fighting that followed, including George B. Anderson, Colonel Charles II, and Colonel John B. Gordon, who was wounded four times. He was shot once in the cheek and fell unconscious with his face in his hat. He later told friends that he would have drowned in his own blood except for the fact that a Yankee bullet had earlier shot a hole in his hat, which allowed the blood to drain. Robert Rhodes was shot in the thigh but remained on the field. However, the losses of the Confederate officers added to the confusion of the events that followed. As Caldwell's brigade advanced around the right flank of the Confederates, Colonel Francis Barlow and 350 New York men 
saw a weak point in the line and seized a knoll that commanded the sunken road, turning it into a deadly trap. From their vantage point, the Union troops fired down on the road's defenders. The once impregnable position had become an abattoir. A sergeant from the 61st New York later wrote, We were shooting them like sheep in a pen. If a bullet missed the mark at first, it was liable to strike the further bank, angle back, and take them secondarily. The road, soon to be known as Bloody Lane, rapidly filled with bodies, piled two and three feet deep. The New York men continued to fire into the sunken lane and then poured into the roadway, kneeling on the slain Confederates to fire at the retreating survivors. A frenzy seized each man, one soldier recalled. He remembered tossing aside his own empty rifle to pull loaded ones from the hands of the dead to continue firing. Confederates moved in to meet the threat by the Union troops, but a command was misunderstood by Lieutenant Colonel James N. Lightfoot, who had taken over the command of John Gordon. Lightfoot mistakenly ordered his men to withdraw, an order that all five regiments of the brigade thought also applied to them. Confederates hurried towards Sharpsburg, their line broken. Richardson's men were in pursuit of the fleeing men when massed artillery hastily assembled by General Longstreet drove them back. A counterattack led by D.H. Hill flanked the Federal line beside the sunken road, but they were driven back by a fierce charge by the 5th New Hampshire. Unfortunately, this caused the Union Center to collapse, and Richardson was forced to order his division back to the other side of the sunken road. His division lost nearly 1,000 men. Colonel Barlow was wounded, and Richardson later died from his wounds. The Federal advance had been stalled, and the battle at the center of the line died out. Over the years, Bloody Lane has come to be known as the most eerie spot on the Antietam battlefield. Visitors have had many strange encounters here, and even some former skeptics have come to believe that the events of the past are still very present in this place. Reports that have been collected over the years tell of phantom gunfire echoing along the old road and the smell of smoke and gunpowder that seems to come from nowhere. Other reports have included the apparitions of men in Confederate uniforms who were believed to be reenactors until they vanished without a trace. Perhaps the most famous story of the Bloody Lane involves a group of boys from the McDonough School a private school located near Baltimore. They toured the battlefield and ended the day at Bloody Lane. The boys were allowed to wander about and think about what they had learned that day. They were then asked to record their impressions for a history assignment, and some wrote brief remarks and poems. But the comments that got the most attention from their teacher were written by several boys who walked down the road to the observation tower which is located where the Irish Brigade charged the Confederate line. The boys described hearing strange noises that became shouts coming from the field near the tower. Some of them said it sounded like a chant. Others described the voices as though someone were singing a Christmas song which sounded a lot like Deck the Halls. Most specifically, they described the words as sounding like the part of the song that goes fa-la-la-la-la. The singing came strongly and then faded away. But what if the singing had not been a Christmas song at all, but the sounds of the famous Irish Brigade clearing the way? Fa'a Bala. 
I used to work at this hospital on a surgical floor. None of the staff liked to go into room 228. You would hear things like a bedside table moving, hear disembodied voices, and the call light would go off by itself. We tried not to put patients in that room because of the activity. Not only did we nurses experience activity, but the patients reported activity as well. Some saw a person standing in the corner while others heard singing. There were also reports of the bed shaking and the bedside table moving. However, the creepiest thing that ever happened was when a child was assigned to room 228. One time, a child's mom stepped off the floor, and I heard the child having a conversation with someone. I went back to the room, and I got chilled. The room felt like it was covered in a thick patch of fog. I asked the child who he was talking to, and he said a lady was talking to him. I left the room feeling a little uneasy and went back to the nurse's station. The mom came back up and went into the room. She then came out and said, thanks for having that lady stay with him while I was gone. I just smiled. I wasn't going to tell her that her child was being watched by a ghost. being buried alive has been a constant companion of mankind for as long as anyone can remember. As bizarre as it might sound, certain variations of safety coffins that were designed during the 18th and 19th centuries are still in practice today. Tapophobia is the medical term for the fear of being buried alive as a result of being incorrectly pronounced dead. Tapophobia can be justified due to the number of cases of people being buried alive by accident. In 1905, the English reformer William Tebb collected accounts of premature burial. He found 219 cases of near-live burial, 149 actual live burials, 10 cases of live dissection, and two cases of awakening while being embalmed. Of course, Edgar Allan Poe's novel, The Premature Burial, published in 1844, resulted in even greater fear, especially since the book contained accounts of supposedly genuine cases of premature burial. Therefore, it's not a surprise people feared coffins and graves. During the 18th and 19th century, a large number of safety coffins were patented. Many coffins were fitted with a mechanism to allow the occupant to signal that he or she had been buried alive. The first recorded safety coffin was constructed on the orders of Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick before his death in 1792. The Duke demanded to have a window installed to allow light in, an air tube to provide a supply of fresh air, and instead of having the lid nailed down, he had a lock fitted. In a special pocket of his shroud, he had two keys one for the coffin lid and a second for the tomb door. The trouble with many designed safety coffins 
was that they included ladders, escape hatches, and even feeding tubes, but their creators forgot to implement a method of providing air. In 1798, P. G. Pessler, a German priest, suggested that all coffins must have a tube inserted from which a cord would run to the church bells. If an individual had been buried alive, he could draw attention to himself by ringing the bells. Pessler's colleague, Pastor Beck, suggested that coffins should have a small trumpet-like tube attached. Each day, the local priest could check the state of putrefaction of the corpse by sniffing the odors emanating from the tube. If no smell was detected or the priest heard cries for help, the coffin could be dug up and the occupant rescued. In 1822, Dr. Adolf Gutsmith wanted to demonstrate how ingenious his safety coffins were. He was buried alive and stayed underground for several hours and even ate a meal delivered to him through the coffin's feeding tube. Improvement of safety coffins and their mechanisms continued. Among many things, in 1829, Dr. Johann Gottfried Tobiger designed a system using a bell which would alert the cemetery night watchman. In 1900, Walter McKnight of Buffalo, New York, patented an all-electric device for indicating the awakening of persons buried alive. In addition to the usual air pipe to the surface, a large electromagnet, solenoid, in an enclosure on the surface pulled up a cap on the air pipe when movement of the corpse's hands closed the switch. An electric bell was mounted outside the enclosure. A telegraphic grave signal device was patented in 1901 by Monroe Griffith of Sioux Falls, Iowa. In addition to the wiring of hands and feet to signal awakening and movement of the corpse, switches under the corpse would close if the body were lifted by grave robbers. Rather than using a buzzer above the grave, the wires led to a central office, such as the home of the cemetery sexton or police station. In 1908, George Willems of Roanoke, Illinois, patented a grave attachment which consisted of a pipe at the foot of the coffin leading to the surface. With an adjustable mirror at each end and a remote-controlled flashlight, the idea was simply to observe the corpse for several days after burial. 1913 brought a more sophisticated device for detecting life in a corpse in hospitals, morgues, crematoriums, at bathing beaches, and on ocean-going steamers. Peter Baucus of Delphos, Ohio was the inventor. The elaborate apparatus consisted of a motor-driven vacuum pump, electric heaters, telephone monitor, and a special stretcher placed in a sealed casket. Presumably, a professional operated this apparatus and performed tests for residual life in the corpse. As late as 1983, a coffin life detector was patented by Fernand Gouchard of France. The device used electrical relays and included a vacuum pump, but still relied on the old standby of detecting body movement to trigger the alarm. In 1995, a modern safety coffin was patented by Fabrizio Caselli. His design included an emergency alarm, intercom system, a flashlight, breathing apparatus, and both a heart monitor and stimulator. It is believed that the phrases saved by the bell, dead ringer, and graveyard shift come from the use of safety coffins in the Victorian era. The fear of being buried alive is still with us today. However, it is interesting to note that there are no documented cases of anybody being saved by a safety coffin.
keep listening. I have numerous stories still to come. We're only halfway through. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the free audio series, Happening Now, Bible Prophecy in Perspective. When it comes to things like end times and prophecy, it's hard to see past the hysteria and conspiracy theories. In this free audio series, Happening Now, Bible Prophecy in Perspective, Jack Hibbs takes a grounded look at current events. You can download the audio series absolutely free right now, and at the same time, you'll automatically be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Register now by clicking the banner at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. This free giveaway and contest ends March 30, 2018. I have this vivid memory from when I was about three years old. I was out of my body like a ghost staring down at myself. I remember thinking that something was wrong. This girl wasn't moving or breathing. I remember my mom hollering in the next room calling the girl in. I remember lying down on top of the body and being absorbed in. I don't know if this was a dream or a possible possession or maybe even receiving my soul, I'll never know. The memory is very clear. A few years later, when I started second grade, I started feeling a presence following me. Strange things started happening. I remember being pushed on the swings, but no one was behind me. I'd woken up a few times to my hair already being brushed. At the time, these didn't seem strange. One day I stayed home from school. My parents couldn't stay with me because of work. I fell asleep thinking about my favorite shirt that I wanted to wear the next day, but it was dirty. When I awoke, I was wearing that shirt, but it was clean. This nice ghost started materializing over time. She was an older, stocky-looking lady who smelled of cigarettes. She would play with me all the time. I remember telling her secrets and playing hide-and-go-seek. My mom went through an old photo album and pulled out a picture of my grandma who had died when my mother was 17. The resemblance was striking. I started telling my mom all about her, facts I shouldn't have known. That night, my mom slept in my room and prayed for all the spirits to leave our house. I never saw the stocky-looking lady who smelled of cigarettes after that. Did my experience from childhood allow me to see her? Did she want to connect with the grandchild she never met? I'll never know. something strange happened on the cold night of February 8, 1855, around the X estuary in Devon, England. That winter was extremely cold. According to reports from the time, temperatures remained around freezing from January until March. The low temperatures didn't allow snow to melt, and every new snowfall just added a new layer over the terrain. These extreme weather conditions were the perfect setup for the strange events of that night. According to the few witness accounts from the time, 
After a heavy snowfall on the night of February 8, 1855, mysterious hoof marks appeared all over South and East Devon. The hoof marks were reported to be around four inches long, three inches across, between eight and sixteen inches apart, and mostly in a single file. Reports about these footprints came from around 30 different locations in Devon. The combined footprints had a reported length of between 40 and 100 miles. It seemed like the creature that left the traces could overcome any obstacle. Footprints were found over houses, frozen rivers, haystacks, snow-covered roofs, high walls, and also inside drain pipes. Here is a part of one news report that describes the event. It appears on Thursday night last there was a very heavy snowfall in the neighborhood of Exeter and the south of Devon. On the following morning, the inhabitants of the above towns were surprised at discovering the footmarks of some strange and mysterious animal endowed with the power of ubiquity, as the footprints were to be seen in all kinds of unaccountable places, on the tops of houses and narrow walls, in gardens and courtyards, enclosed by high walls and palings, as well as in open fields. The footprints appeared over a huge area, from Exmouth up to Topsham and across the X estuary to Dawlish and Tainmouth. Some reports also claimed prints appeared even further south to Totnes and Torquay, and as far away as Weymouth or Dorset in Lincolnshire. First-hand evidence of this event is rare. The first written accounts of this phenomenon appeared in 1950 after a collection of documents belonging to Rev. H. T. Ellicombe, the vicar of Christ St. George in the 1850s, was discovered. These documents included his personal letters, some tracings of the footprints, and a letter to the Illustrated London News marked Not for Publication. Here is a part of that letter. The marks which appeared on the snow, which lay very thinly on the ground at the time, and which were seen on Friday morning to all appearances were the perfect impression of a donkey's hoof, the length four inches by two and three-quarter inches, but instead of progressing as that animal would have done, or indeed as any other would have done, feet right and left, it appeared that foot had followed foot, in a single line, the distance from each tread being eight inches, or rather more, the footmarks in every parish being exactly the same size, and the steps the same length. The footprints were soon named Devil's Footprints, or Tracks of Satan, because of their shape and resemblance to a cloven hoof. Some people started to really believe the devil himself made the footprints. People were scared for some time after the event and avoided venturing outside after midnight. Since this mystery was first investigated, there has been a variety of different theories about the origin of the traces in the snow. One more recent study of this subject, done by Mike Dash, a notable Welsh writer, historian, and researcher, claims that there was no single source of footprints. According to him, some of those tracks were most likely hoaxes. Most of them were probably made by quadrupeds, such as donkeys and ponies, and there were also some traces made by wood mice. Still, at the end of his study, Dash admits that not all of the marks can be explained and allows for the mystery to continue. Dash's suggestion that at least some of the footprints were made by hopping rodents seems pretty solid. He noted that traces left by wood mice resemble that of an animal with cloven hoofs. 
This theory was also mentioned in the Illustrated London News in March 1855. The British novelist, Geoffrey Household, had a different idea about the traces, though. He believed that an experimental balloon was mistakenly released on the Devonport dockyard. According to Geoffrey, the balloon had made the traces in the snow by dragging two shackles attached on the end of its mooring ropes. Household believed that this was a true event about which he heard from a man called Major Carter, whose grandfather had worked at Devonport at the time. According to Carter, this incident had been covered up because the balloon damaged a few greenhouses and windows before it finally went down somewhere close to Honiton. Another theory from July of 1855 suggests that the traces were made by groups of hungry badgers awake and searching for food that night. Badgers are quadrupeds that leave a large footprint. One other theory that has been suggested many times is that the whole fuss about the footprints was a case of mass hysteria. It was probably caused by people seeing many different animal tracks and failing to distinguish them as separate. Whatever the truth may be, this event was probably a really strange sight for those people 163 years ago, and it still captivates our imagination today. John List was a Sunday school teacher and a successful bank executive. He lived in a mansion in New Jersey with his wife and their three children. It was big enough they could make an apartment for List's mother. He was the perfect family man. But then things went wrong. So John List killed his perfect family and started a new one, and he almost got away with it. For weeks before the murders, List left every day for work but got only as far as the train station, where he would spend the day reading. His family did not know he had lost his job, but he knew they were going to find out. The mortgage was not being paid. The house was being foreclosed. He was about to be exposed as a failure. Something had to be done. On November 9, 1971, after the children left for school, List shot his wife Helen in the back of the head as she was drinking her coffee. He went upstairs and shot his 84-year-old mother. He took a break and made himself lunch. Then he went to the bank to close his accounts and cash his mother's savings bonds. When his daughter Patricia, 16, and his son Frederick, 13, came home, he shot them too. Then he went to the high school to watch his 15-year-old son John Jr. play in a soccer game. After the game, he drove his son home and shot him in the chest and face. He called his children's schools to say that they would be away for a while. He put the bodies of his wife and children in sleeping bags and left them on the floor of the mansion's ballroom. He left his mother's body in her apartment. The next day, he cut his picture out of all the family portraits so police would not have a photo for the wanted poster. He turned down the thermostat, turned on the radio, tuned to a religious station. Then he thoroughly vanished. It was a month before police even found the bodies. They launched a nationwide manhunt, but the trail was cold by then. It wasn't for another 18 years that police would learn where he went. List had left his car at the airport, but that was a ruse. In fact, he had taken a bus to Denver where he found a job as a hotel cook, 
using the name Robert Clark. Eventually, he got a better job as an accountant for H&R Block. He joined the Lutheran Church and met a widow named Dolores Clark. They married and moved to Richmond, Virginia. John List might have lived the rest of his life in freedom if it weren't for the TV show America's Most Wanted. The show featured List in 1989. They had a forensic sculptor create a bust showing what List most likely looked like today. His old neighbors in Denver recognized him. He was sentenced to five consecutive life terms and died in prison in 2008. List said he killed his family to spare them from the humiliation of losing their home and because he hoped they would go to heaven. Psychiatrists say he never showed remorse for his cold-blooded murder of the List family. If you want to hear more Weird Darkness, you might want to consider becoming a patron. You'll get archive episodes, personal videos, and more. Also, Marlar House patrons can now hear chapters from horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Currently, I'm narrating the horror novel Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, and you can start listening right from Chapter 1 only if you are a patron, and you'll get new chapters to listen to as I record them until the book is finished and officially published. Then the entire book will disappear from my Patreon page, so you'll want to listen to the chapters while they are still available. Learn more about becoming a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. This episode is sponsored by Send Out Cards. You can try it absolutely free at SendOutCards.com weird. That's SendOutCards.com weird. And I have an event update for you. Weird Darkness is a sponsor of numerous uh, events coming up here in the near future. May 18th through the 20th, uh, I'm going to be sponsoring the Laugh or Die Comedy Festival in Peoria, Illinois. If you love uh, comedy films and, well, it's just comedy in general, the Laugh or Die Comedy Fest is something you definitely want to check out. Three straight days of nothing but funny stuff on screen. June 9th uh, in New Orleans. Uh, it's the New Orleans Comic Con, and I'm also a sponsor there. If you want to go check that out, if you love Comic Cons, the, the people at Mighty Con do an amazing job, and they're going to be in New Orleans June 9th. And also, uh, coming up in later June, I've decided I'm actually going to go in person to a couple of events. If you want to come out and shake my hand, say hi, I would love to meet weirdos from all over the country. June 16th in Wheaton, Illinois. I will be uh, be there in person for the DuPage Comic Con. And then June 22nd and 23rd, I will be uh, in person on location at the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois. And I will be updating my event schedule as much as possible, which I'll try to keep updated in the show notes. And I do have links to all of these events uh, with details about tickets and uh, directions and everything else, uh, the schedules for all the events, it's all there in the show notes if you want to check it out. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Charge of the Irish Brigade was written by Troy Taylor. The Strange History of Safety Coffins was posted at AncientPages.com. 
haunted hospital room was posted at ghostsandghouls.com. Indrid Cold, the Grinning Man was written by Les Hewitt for historicmysteries.com. The 1855 Devil's Footprints Mystery was written by Boban Dokevsky for thevintagenews.com. I Have This Vivid Memory was submitted anonymously to WeirdDarkness.com. And John List, the perfect family man who killed his perfect family, was posted at thelineup.com. Music in this episode is by Midnight Syndicate. You can download the music right now for yourself by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you like news, politics, and laughs, be sure to check out my other podcast at dailydoseofweirdnews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.